Good morning, everyone. Sorry, my mic's just a little bit echoey this morning. I apologize. I actually, I had one that I was going to wear, and I was struggling to get it to fit to my ear, and then I broke it. <laughs> so I broke a mic this morning. So I'm wearing a backup mic that doesn't sound nearly as good. Yes, accidents happen. So I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to preach. Uh, Jack carries a heavy weight of preaching many Sundays every year. It's, it's a big responsibility. But I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this. And I'm thankful if you don't preach very often, you basically get to keep picking your favorite passages. So I just get to keep doing that. So hopefully the sermons will, will be like at least B-team good this morning. So yeah, so I want to talk about the call of God, called by God. When I started into vocational ministry, I had several people ask, how did you know that you were called into this ministry? When did you know the calling of God on your life? Well, uh, several things that I think back to when I think of God's call in my life. First and foremost, being his child, being saved by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And I'm one of those guys that probably some of you here this morning that you don't have a date nailed down. This is when I knew. I mean, I knew at once I was in darkness and now I'm in light and now I knew that at one point I was under God's wrath and now I'm free and forgiven. I don't know when that date was. And honestly, my long-term memory isn't that great. So I'm feeling like maybe I'm getting older, but my long-term memory isn't great, so I, I don't know when that date was. But trusting in Jesus, the first call, uh, God calling me to himself through the, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, fast forward to the summer of 1997. Uh, I had just graduated from high school. Yeah, that kind of shows how old I am, too. 1997, just graduated from high school, and I was in Hastings, Nebraska at a concert by the band New Song. Anybody know who New Song is? Like, they've been around for a long time. They're still doing the, um, what is that called? Winter Jam. I think they, they lead that up. They've kind of taken maybe a little bit more of a backseat to that. But anyway, I'm at a New Song concert, and they do an altar call. So basically, they, they clearly present the gospel. We are sinners. We're under God's wrath. We need saved. We need to trust him as our savior. And so they invited people to come up and pray who wanted to receive Christ as their Savior. And as altar calls often go, there was also that call to recommit your life. If you know Jesus as your Savior, but you've been struggling, and you know you've just been walking in sin and need to recommit your life to the Lord. So that was an, an opportunity, too. Now, that night, I heard God's voice. But let me bring a little clarity to that. I did not hear an audible voice. But what I did hear was in one instant, I didn't know something, and the very next instant, I knew it in so much surety that it was undoubtedly God's voice. So at that concert, I heard, Kyle, I want you to be doing this. I want you to be in a band. I want you to declare my glory, to declare the gospel to other people. And uh, I had played guitar for like six months. I was headed to the University of Nebraska at Kearney for a programming, computer science programming major, and a math minor. Uh, so being in a band was not on my radar at all. But they had that altar call, and my brother was there at the concert and a good friend, and I said, hey, will you come up to me? This, this is what I'm hearing. Like, it feels so clear more than almost any other thing in my life. So they went up and, and prayed with me, and a couple years later, a band started, and it was a, an incredible experience, and I kept feeling that affirmation of, I love ministry. I do not want to sit in front of a computer screen programming anymore. Like, that's, maybe I'm good at it, but I just don't want to. I want to be with people and I want to do ministry. And through my college years, uh, God continued to affirm that kind of calling in my life. 
Um, had the opportunity, a friend invited me to serve on a worship team in the campus ministry. And then eventually an opportunity came to lead one of the worship teams at campus ministry uh, and, and meeting with men and battling this pornography thing and, and discipling others. And uh, I just continued to feel that affirmation. This is what God wants in my life. This is a, a calling specifically for my life. There's one other very distinct moment that I felt like I heard God's voice. Again, not an audible voice, but uh, does anybody know who Joe White is? Joe White, show hands. Yep, Canacook Ministries. Um, I went to a Joe White event at UNL. Uh, actually, I didn't know who Joe White was. I was going because Switchfoot was leading worship at the event. <laughs> That's why I went. So I was just going to go and worship with a band that I really loved. Um, that night... Joe White, he does this, this skit where he is, he's making a cross. And he's like in the, in the view of a Roman. He's making the cross, and Jesus is going to hang on this cross, and he walks through salvation. Again, another altar call. And he dumps out a bunch of chain links on the stage. If anybody wants to trust Jesus as their shape. I'm sad. I don't actually remember what the significance of it being a chain link was, but I remember coming forward. And this thing actually used to be gold-looking, and it's been silver for a long time. It's been in my pocket for a long time. But that night, what I felt I clearly heard was, Kyle, are you willing to do vocational ministry? Are you willing to, to back off all this school stuff that you're doing? I did finish my degree, but are you willing to give your life over to ministry as a vocation? And by the way, even though the band thing is doing really well and everybody's saying, oh, you're going to move to Nashville and do all this stuff, it might not be that. And I felt a very sure, yes, that's, that's what I want. God kept changing my heart towards that end. Very significant moment in, in the calling that God had on my life. Okay, so why do I share this? So I do think that there's likely somebody in here this morning that's being called to vocational ministry. Maybe somebody to be a worship leader. Maybe somebody to preach God's word faithfully. I'm pretty sure of it. Somewhere in here there is. But also... What I hope will resonate in your heart by the end of this morning is that all of us are called to ministry. Anyone who has experienced God's grace is called to be a witness for him. So I want to look at Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, Scripture will be on the screens as well. This is Isaiah's call into ministry. Isaiah, major prophet in the Old Testament, prophet to Judah, the nation of Judah. And let's do just a little bit of setting up here what, what's going on. So starting with verse 1. In the, key, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Now Uzziah was a good king. Uh, you can see this in, in 2 Kings. It says Isaiah, or Uzziah walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He wasn't a perfect king. Actually, pride became an issue for him. And if you look in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you'll find out that he spent the last years of his life as a leper. Sad story. I don't want to get distracted by that. But Uzziah overall was a good king. He reigned for 52 years, 52 years. And a majority of that time, he was pursuing the Lord. Now, Isaiah's vision in the, came in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, if you've got a king for 52 years and he's doing pretty well, you're probably in a, in a year of mourning the loss of, of a great leader. So I think there's just a little takeaway here real quick that I want to point out. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, somebody in here hoped there would be a different president in that office. Could be. 
perhaps somebody has lost a spiritual mentor this year. Or maybe a boss, and there's a change in like who's in charge of you, and you miss the old boss and don't really like the new boss. Uh, no matter who is king or who's in charge, Jesus is always reigning supreme as king. So a great little takeaway from this. Uh, but I want to move on to, to my main points here. In this text, I see three important things that Isaiah needed to be called by God. And I think, I'm hoping we'll resonate with these three things. And the first thing that I see that we need from this text is that we need a holy view of God. We need a holy view of God. Here's the scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have a, a very similar picture in Revelation 4, where John gets the vision of Jesus on a throne, exalted, and there's, there's spiritual beings again with six wings that are constantly proclaiming, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Isaiah saw Jesus in heaven before he left his throne, before he came to come down and accomplish our salvation. Uh, the Gospel of John confirms this. John twelve forty one. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking about Jesus, and spoke about him. Isaiah saw Jesus, however many hundreds of years it was before Jesus was actually here on earth. Isaiah saw Adonai, that's the Greek word here, the sovereign master who deserves our obedience. Adonai, the Lord Jesus, the one who has the right to call us into ministry. The Lord is sitting on a throne. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. The angels, the saints are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the train of his robe, or the hem of his robe, fills the heavenly temple. Now in ancient times, uh, I had to do some studying for this for sure. In ancient times, uh, the king would have a, a hem or a train on his robe. I, I always think of wedding dresses for some reason, like the extra long wedding dresses that people have to carry along. Maybe kind of a similar image. But uh, here's what I learned. When kings conquered other kings, oftentimes they would actually cut off part of the train of that robe and then they would attach it to their own. So it would become longer and more majestic and the longer, the bigger the train or the hem of his robe, they'd say, oh, you know, he's, he's really great and mighty. He must be supreme and has conquered a lot. So the image here of the train filling the temple is that Jesus is king. He is victorious. He is worthy. He is really the only true king. King above all kings. And above him stood the seraphim. Now, we don't know a ton about seraphim. Some theologians classify them as angels. Others just say simply spiritual beings. Uh, and this is actually the only place in Scripture where we see seraphim. The spiritual beings in Revelation, they're very similar, but not quite exactly the same. And more important than the description of the creatures here, it, it's easy to get caught up in, whoa, this is fascinating. Like, these are very interesting creatures. Uh, 
But I want to make sure we don't get distracted with the creatures themselves, but what they're pointing to. That is the glory of Jesus. So with two wings, they covered their faces. So why cover your face? You know, in the presence of the Lord, this shows a holy fear. And keep in mind that these seraphim weren't stained with sin like we are. And yet still, that holy reverence that we have to shield our eyes because of the glory of Jesus. They had no guilt in God's presence, yet still they hid their faces because of the incredible glory, the holiness of Jesus Christ. Uh, how many of you remember the, the total eclipse in uh, 2017? Uh, super cool. So, uh, like the United States, and there was this big swath where, like, if you are in this location, you're going to actually have a total eclipse, and the moon is going to totally cover up the sun. So it wasn't quite total here, but I'm super glad that most of my family and I, we went back to Kearney to my parents, and we got to experience where the moon totally covers it up. And during the eclipse... As it starts, as the moon just kind of starts to barely cover the sun, like you, you can't really tell until it really gets mostly covered and then it starts to get dark really fast. And then when it's completely covered, then you can look at it and it's just incredible. It's amazing. Um, but you can't really look at it until it's like completely covered unless you have those special glasses. Remember that? Like, and, they, and they warned us several times, don't just use sunglasses. Like, you're going to damage your eyes if you think that sunglasses are going to shield you from the splendor of the sun, okay? There's these special things everybody needs to use, and then you, can, uh, then you can look at it when the moon is just barely. I think my dad had, I'm just remembering this now, my dad had a, a welding shield, because I don't know if we had an official one, so like we would look through that to see the sun. If he's, remember, he's probably going to watch this, so he'll remember that. Uh, I think similarly to the way we have to shield our eyes from the sun, I can't look at, at the splendor of the sun, uh, the seraphim, as well as Isaiah, couldn't look upon the holiness, the splendor of the Lord Jesus. Uh, sorry, lost my place here. So, holy, holy, holy. Uh, we see two seraphim, uh, they're covering their eyes to shielding themselves. Uh, and they're also covering their feet. Two wings are covering their feet. And this is really, a, it's a sign of humility in the presence of the Lord, their, their service to the King of Kings. And with two wings, they flew or perhaps hovered. Um, I'm not picturing a like, thing constantly flying around, but hovering. Uh, again, all this is meant to point us to the glory of Jesus. And we see this most clearly in their words. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Holy, holy, holy. We just sang that a few times this morning. Uh, I grew up with the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, our songs shall rise to thee. And I, I've sang these songs that have the word holy three times in a row, and I don't know that I've stopped to think about it quite enough. Now, in languages, we have different ways that we can express things and bring emphasis to things. And in the Hebrew language, if you say things twice, okay, really pay attention because there's, there's a point here when uh, the writer says something twice. Uh, it's, it's to declare an emphasis in a, um, like something is, is at a very high degree. So when you see a word three times in a row, or the, the triplicate of a word, uh, it's extremely rare in the Bible, and it's, it's the highest way to emphasize something. It's the highest way to emphasize something. So I have a problem that I'm willing to admit. I overuse the exclamation point. 
Does, does anybody else do that? I'm serious. So uh, if you know me well, I'm a pretty joyful person, and I, I love life and uh, exclamation points. I just use them a lot. Now, I don't use, like, tons of exclamation points on the same sentence, but after each sentence, sometimes I do that. And when Nathan Ayersman was here as a creative arts director, and I would send him my staff journal, for those of you that read the staff journal, he would almost weekly email me back, great job, uh, I took out some exclamation points as usual, and then I sent it away to the church so that they could read it. <laughs> he mentioned that, you know, if you keep using the exclamation point, like, all the time, it kind of loses some of its significance, so please don't overuse it. I use that example because uh, I should use it more rarely, and it should mean what it's supposed to mean. Uh, the triplicate use of any word in the Hebrew language is very rare. If you want to write these down, you can. Uh, so you can see it in Ezekiel 21:27, Jeremiah 22:29, Revelation 8:13. However, each of these ways are actually used in a more negative sense, uh, as like a judgment. But here we see one of God's attributes esteemed seemingly greater than his other attributes. Now, if we think about the Bible, I'm not aware of any place in the Bible where it says God is faithful, faithful, faithful. Or anywhere in the Bible where it says God is merciful, merciful, merciful. Or even the one that we love so much, God is love, that we write so many songs about. God is love, love, love. You actually don't see that. But you do see holiness three times. And uh, I want to suggest that if there's any attribute of God that should be seen as a a higher attribute is his holiness. And the basic idea of holiness here is to be set apart. It's sacred. It's not commonplace, but it's special and it's unique. God is set apart from the world that he rules over. This is the world. This is the glory of the world. This is the glory of God. It's so much more, so much other. Yes, we are image bearers and we reflect his glory, but the glory of God is so much more. We don't even come close. No one is like God. In fact, there is no other God. And we need this holy view of God. We need this to understand our calling. We need to know that God is holy. Uh, I'm a big fan of A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. If you haven't read it, uh, especially since I don't read a whole lot, here's one of my recommendations. Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. Uh, he says, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thanking, worshiping men. And then just a few pages later, he says this, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her the church. We need a holy view of God. This is where our calling into his service starts. The more we see God as holy, the more we see his glory, the greater our desire will be to live on mission for him and to declare to other people his holiness, his glory. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. I love it when it gets so loud in here that, and I have my earphones out, that it almost hurts my ears because of how loud the church is. I love that. And I know the picture of heaven is going to be incredible. Uh, I love this picture of their voices declaring holy and it's shaking everything. Uh, and the place was filled with smoke. 
So smoke, there's an altar uh, in this temple, so likely, and it could be smoke coming from the altar, but there's also something that the Hebrew listener would have thought of the Shekinah glory. So in the temple, the, the inner, the Holy of Holies, when God's presence dwelled there, the Shekinah glory, this, this cloud of smoke would come and fill the temple, and that's when they knew that God was there in, in all his glory. Uh, this vision of holiness, it, it points to God's glory being on display. And, and in this preparation of the sermon, I've thought a number of times, my view of God is too low. Perhaps your view of God this morning is too low. Maybe we need to repent of our low view of God. God is so much greater, so much holier than we know or we can comprehend. And sometimes we try to fit him <laughs> into our, our minds, things that we can't comprehend, the vastness of God. So Lord, forgive us, trying to make you in our image. Forgive us for thinking we can comprehend your splendor. Forgive us for our low view of you and elevate that view, Lord. Help us to see you high and exalted and holy. We need a holy view of God to be called to minister, but we also need a humble view of self. We need a humble view of self. Here's what Isaiah says. Then I said, Woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am undone. I am utterly exposed because of God's holiness, His glory, and I acknowledge I am unworthy. I am a sinner, I am unclean, Lord, have mercy. Whatever righteousness I thought I had would have been by comparison thinking, oh, I'm doing pretty well, I'm pretty righteous, I'm holy, I compare myself to some other people. Any of that is wrecked in the presence of an all-holy, mighty God. Isaiah probably felt pretty good about himself. He was completely ruined in God's presence. In fact, I bet Isaiah was somebody we would have tried to imitate. That's a man of God. We should, we should be like him. We should imitate him as he imitates God. But he was ruined. He understood who he truly was in light of God's holiness. He said, woe is me. So when I think of the word woe, I typically think of a prophet pronouncing judgment on someone or say, here's a warning, woe is you, you're unrepentant, you're in sin. Woe is you. Or I think of Jesus proclaiming, woe to the Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Or woe to a city when all these miracles were done and they didn't believe upon the Lord Jesus. I don't typically think of a prophet pronouncing woe on himself. But we do see that in Scripture once in a while, and here's a case where we see that. Isaiah is saying, woe is me. Now, Isaiah is going to go on to proclaim other woes, some that we're probably pretty familiar with, one that we've used quite a bit, I think, in the last decade or so. Isaiah says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And he says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are champions at pouring beer. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws. And here he's saying, woe is me. So why is Isaiah crying, woe is me? He's in the presence of God. He's ruined. All of us should be ruined in the presence of God. He realized how unworthy he was 
to be in the Lord's presence. Uh, also in knowledge of the holy. Tozer, in a later chapter, describes the holiness of God. And he, he talks about Isaiah's encounter with the Lord Jesus. And here's what he has to say about it. Such an experience cannot but be emotionally violent. When I am in the presence of the Lord God Almighty and I understand my own worthiness, my sin, it's emotionally violent. I am wrecked and I weep and I cry out, woe is me, Lord forgive me. This reminds me of Peter in, in Luke chapter 5. So Peter has been fishing and he can't catch any fish all night and Jesus comes along, throw your nets in and they start to pull in this this massive catch of fish that the nets are starting to tear. And of this experience, here's what Peter says from Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter realized that he was in the presence of the Lord. He had to acknowledge his sin. And this also reminds me of Job and Job's encounter with the Lord. Job 42, verses 5 and 6 says this. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. The more clearly we see God and understand how holy he is, the more we will be humbled. The more honestly I think we'll understand our need for God's grace. The more we glimpse God's glory, the more we understand our depravity. Like that one, one more time. The more we glimpse God's glory, the more we understand our own depravity. God's holiness humbles us. We realize we're hopeless without forgiveness. We realize that we're unclean and we need cleansed. Oh, for God's mercy, that we can be in his presence. I think admitting our sin and unworthiness is perhaps the best prerequisite to serving the Lord. So I ask, have you seen God's glory? Do you hunger to see God for who he truly is? Have you been wrecked at his holiness, at his glory? Have you thought yourself righteous with a comparative righteousness and then realized, woe is me, I don't measure up? Have you felt the conviction of your own guilt? Have you despised yourself? Have you mourned your sin? Moving on in the text. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah's confession that he was unworthy, that he was unclean, was met with God's gracious provision of mercy. I can't help but think of John 1, 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we acknowledge our sin in light of God's holiness, we are ready to receive God's grace. We're ready to receive his forgiveness. And the hot coal that the seraphim used for, it's from the altar. So the altar is where the sacrifice is made. Uh, the coals underneath where the blood would have dripped down, and they're thinking the atonement of sin. This is this is where I'm forgiven, that the blood that drops down on the coals, and he's bringing this to him. So don't, don't necessarily picture this as a, oh, I, the, like the fire of God is burning me clean. It's, Isaiah wasn't burnt in this. The, the symbol is not the heat and fire. The symbol is the blood that would have been on the coals that point ultimately to the blood of Jesus. 
that we, we celebrated this morning, we contemplated this morning, his blood poured out for us. That was the only way to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. This was the only way we could be justified through a, a blood offering. Now, this isn't in my outline, but don't miss this. Uh, God doesn't call people to be his witnesses who haven't been saved by his grace. Yes, God is sovereign. He uses unbelievers. We see him use total nations that are godless to, to pull his own justice upon Judah, upon Israel. But the greatest calling in life, the greatest purpose that our lives could ever have, being God's ambassadors, declaring his gospel to others, we won't experience that if we have not been saved from our sin. So I hope you can know the greatest joyful purpose and calling in your life to declare God's gospel, his grace. Okay, moving on. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Yes, I did that loud because that's when I hear that. Here I am, send me. To be called by God, we need a readiness to respond. Isaiah was ready. Isaiah had seen the Lord in all his holiness, realized his sinfulness. He had been saved. He was ready to be sent. He was ready to hear the voice of the God. And perhaps, if you're not hearing the voice of God and you never have, perhaps you're not his child. Perhaps you haven't placed your trust in him. You haven't been purified or cleansed. Only after Isaiah was cleansed did he hear God's voice. And notice that God didn't say, Isaiah, will you go for me? It was an all call. It was a, who will go? Something else that I wanted to point out that just struck me, because I'd read this many times, but I'd never seen this before. Who will I send? Who will go for us? I think we have a really cool picture of our triune God. Father, Spirit, Son. Who will go for us? Okay, that's great, Kyle. Thanks. Thanks for telling us that we needed to be called. But I'm not Hosea, and I'm not called to minister to a whole nation, to be the voice of God to a whole nation. So what does this have to do specifically with me? And I'm glad you asked. Uh, I don't think Isaiah's call specifically works for us, but you couple this with some New Testament theology and truth, I think you realize that we're all called. Maybe there was a unique calling in the Old Testament, but there's a, a widespread calling to all of God's children in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're in Christ, you are a chosen person. You're a priest, priesthood of the saints. You are called to minister as well. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we commonly talk about this being the great commission that's a, a call to all who have been affected and changed by God's grace. Jesus came to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, we've just gotten done with a, a series on repentance, and the Holy Spirit absolutely is here to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. But the Holy Spirit is also here indwelling the believer to make us bold, to make us courageous, to make us not care so much about what our neighbor thinks or our classmate thinks and not have to worry about that so much, but to honor him and to be bold and courageous in that. God is calling us as his children. Here's another one. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We need to be ready to respond. We need to be ready with a defense of the gospel, as 1 Peter 3 says. <clears throat> we have four core values here as a church. And this one just felt very fitting that I should remind us of this. Maybe these are new to you. Uh, one of our core values, owning the mission. And here's how we clarify this. We are the church. Each one of us has a unique responsibility to share the gospel in our circles of influence and beyond. No exceptions. Each one of us has that responsibility. There is a, a mission that God has to seek and save the lost, and he's called all of us to cooperate, to be a part of that mission. All of us are a sent people, just like Isaiah was sent. Now, in previous decades, I think when, and maybe this was just my church growing up, but when I heard of it, like Isaiah's, here am I, send me, I think many of the churches, especially in America, were thinking, okay, God is calling me to go overseas to Africa and to minister. But I, I think we need a more robust idea of this calling, of this sentness of the church. This isn't just, and, I, and Lord, I pray that some of us end up going overseas to be missionaries from this place. I'm, I'm sure that will happen, and I love that. But we need to see ourselves as a sent people right where we're at. We need to be ready to respond to the Spirit's prompting when we're supposed to stop that mower and go over and talk to the, to the neighbor. Or when we're supposed to invite them over for dinner. Or when we're supposed to invite them over to come watch the Super Bowl. We need to be ready to respond to the Spirit's prompting uh, when we know we need to pray with a coworker or a classmate. It's going to take some boldness, but I, I know God wants me to do this. We need to be ready to respond when the Spirit prompts us to reach out to an estranged family member. We need to be ready to respond. Are we ready to respond? Are you ready to respond? And if you're thinking, no, I'm not sure if I am, perhaps our, our view of God is, is too low, or perhaps our view of self is too high, or perhaps there's people in here, probably, most likely there's people in here that just haven't realized that we are unworthy and we need cleansed, we need forgiven. Students, are all you students in here, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has called you to be a witness in your school. And I don't care if you're at a public school, a private school, or even homeschool. God has called you to be a witness. Adults in here, wherever you live, you've been called to share the gospel. Whether you're in a trailer house or in a, a really fancy house by the golf course, or if you're renting or if you're buying, God has put you in a neighborhood, and I believe that that's on purpose. Maybe your nearest neighbor is 50 feet. Maybe your nearest neighbor is a, is a mile or even more. I still think you're in a place 
for a purpose to be a witness in that area. If you've encountered the holy creator of the universe and acknowledged your own unworthiness and been saved by God's grace, he has sent you. Personally, I've experienced God's grace in such incredible ways that Paul's words in, in Acts 20, 24 just resonate really well with me. And he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. My life is worthless if I don't commit to being a witness to him, if I keep this inside, if I just do my huddle and I love my church and I got my walls built up around me and my life is, is worthless, it's pointless. I want to invite the, the worship team up with me uh, and we're going to sing a song it's really weird, but we're going to sing a song that I wrote. Uh, and if you were here December 25th, we sang it briefly. Um, and I wrote this as a prayer, and I'm praying that it would be an anthem for us as a church, that we would see ourselves as a sent people. And uh, the verse really is a prayer that, that God would go out before us, and he would prepare all those divine appointments with the people that he wants us to talk to and that he uh, would soften hearts, and that he would move powerfully, and he would make us bold and courageous. So I know this song is going to be very new to most of you because you can't like find it anywhere online and listen to it. Eventually you'll be able to, but uh, I hope that you'll sing these truths with me, and I don't claim that as my truths. I claim that because most of it's directly from Scripture. Um, let's be sent. Let's sing the song together, and... Uh, Thanks for letting me share. Yeah. Uh, you should stand with us, though. Go before us, open doors, soften hearts, remove the veil. Holy Spirit, I need your power. Without you, Because of your 
us out. Thanks for singing with me. Thanks for uh, letting me share uh, what God has, has put on my heart through Isaiah 6. I pray you'd be encouraged and powerfully by the Spirit's power be his witnesses this week. Uh, let's leave it at these words. We are the church. Let's go be the church. Grace, we are sent. <laughs>